Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and as always you can listen to this and previous episodes of the show on our website irishhistoryshow.ie. You can also check us out on Twitter at Irish History Pod or Facebook. If you get a chance please like and review the show, rate and review the show on iTunes. It really helps us, helps us to promote the show. On today's episode, myself and John Dorney are going to be discussing the Dáil Courts. Now, John, what were the Dáil Courts? Well, the Dáil Courts have gone down in history as like an alternative revolutionary court system to replace the British court system. But if you actually look at what happened, the Dáil Courts were kind of an improvisation. You know, they kind of, they kind of happened from activists on the ground rather than having a, there being a central plan. So. One thing when looking into this I found is that kind of the ancestor of the Dáil Courts is uh, the courts, the arbitration courts of the Land League back in the days of the Land War, which would set rents on disputed estates. That didn't, th- those didn't last. I mean, they were replaced by, na- by arbitration courts by the Gladstone government. But in 1917, 1918, there's another great resurgence of land conflict, one of the periodic ones, especially in the west of Ireland. And what you started to see was people setting up local courts outside of the British system, to try to adjudicate on land disputes ra- rather than, you know, criminal cases at first. But there were so many, you know, land disputes and cattle drives and things like this. But, you know, in many places, the volunteers uh, got involved. For example, Michael Brennan in County Clare, but in County Cavan, there was an early example of one of these courts. But they were legal because they were arbitration courts where the two parties would get together and they'd vol- they could voluntarily accept the verdict. Now, they were adopted by the, the Dáil. So the Dáil, the Revolutionary Parliament of the Republic, Irish Republic, declared independence in 1919. And one of the things they wanted to do actually was to calm the land agitation in the West because they, they feared that it would undermine the nationalist agitation. They didn't want to be distracted. So one of the things they did was they adopted these arbitration courts. And in Kevin O'Shiel was first of all set up a, a, a land commission but secondly, in May of 1920, they adopted these, these courts that were springing up around the country. And first, they were put under the Department of Agriculture, which will show, will show again the inspiration for it. We should say as well that uh, the Department of Agriculture of the revolutionary Dáil government, that's not recognised. So don't think of you know, the Department of Agriculture on Kildare Street with the big office. You know, this, yeah. Is, yeah, this, this is an insurrectionary government, if you like. Mm. Um, but they anyway, they adopted the these courts, and they put them under the Department of Agriculture in May 1920. But by June, the courts had started to handle, you know, other business, because there's also a breakdown of law and order, you know, due to, you know, the, the, the police being boycotted and stuff like that. But in June, they get transferred, the authority gets transferred from the Department of Agriculture to the Department of Home Affairs. Now, this is all, of course, as you said, it's an underground government, but under Aston Stack, who's the Minister for Home Affairs, and they adopted the the courts and you know they at this point they got renamed the Dáil courts because they were under the authority of the Dáil and the idea now is that these are courts that are going to replace the British system that these mm-hmm. are Irish courts as a rival and as a replacement mm-hmm. for the existing courts and this is something quite different this is challenging the king's writ you know mm-hmm. it's a, it's an insurrectionary act really if you're saying don't follow the law that's there you know we'll make our own law there's some dispute about the kind of law that they followed but basically the instruction was that they were to implement the law as it existed on January 21st, 1919, so the day they declared independence. Now, there's some accounts will tell you they used 
civil law or Breton law and stuff like this, but they didn't really. They used the existing law with maybe some minor like local modifications. But one of the interesting things, and this is probably not that well known, is that Ostenstack went around and he got sympathetic lawyers and judges and he, he recruited them to, to man the dull courts. Mm. Like he recruited the professor of law at UCD, so uh, A. Cleary, as the Supreme Court, the Supreme Judge, Supreme Justice of the Republic, and Cahir David, who was the son of Michael David, the, the mm. Land League agitator, but he was a lawyer, and Dermot Crowley, who, who we'll be talking a lot about mm. as circuit judges. And David and Crowley were sent to supervise the work of the courts in different areas and to try to and they also wrote down the procedure and so so forth for the law courts so this attempt there's this attempt to regularize them and there's also like um some a portion of the volunteers of the ira is taken out is kind of seconded uh, and it's called the irp the irish republican police and their job is to in so far as possible to uh implement the rulings of the dog courts their justice could be very rough and ready like for example there's stories of people being rowed out to islands in loch carb until they accepted the verdict I mean, in Dublin, there's 12 men in the squad of the IRP. And, uh, you know, they what they did was they arrested criminals and they stuck them in a shed in Ringsend pending deportation. Then they stuck them on, on a boat to England. So some, sometimes the justice could be very rough and ready. Now, w- one thing just before I finish this long-winded answer, Cahill, is uh, it, it's a mistake, though, to, to confuse the dull courts with the IRA's court-martials, right? So the IRA was supposed to conduct court-martials for shooting informers. You know, on the save GHQ. They didn't always do that, but that was the theory. But that's something quite different, right? So sometimes people confuse and they think the dull courts were sentencing people to death. They weren't. That was a that was a separate thing. That was an IRA thing. The Minister for Local Government, again in the Dog Cosgrave, W. T. Cosgrave and his deputy Kevin O'Higgins were very keen on um, trying to use the IRP and the IRA to enforce the rulings of the Dog Courts and, and also to collect rates and stuff for the for the county councils that were controlled by the Republicans, you know, the IRA wasn't that keen on it. But it, that's that's an important distinction to make. So the dull courts are the civil side of the revolution, if you like. They're activists. The judges are elected locally. So sometimes they're women, like, for example, in Dublin. There was two dull courts underground, illegal, in Pembroke Ward and in Rathmines Ward, I think. Women sat in them. But also a Catholic clergy quite often sat in them. Occasionally, occasionally, Protestant clergy were asked to sit in them as well. But they were, they were the civil side of the revolution, though. You know, they were this thing of, like, Bypassing the British system, ignoring it, you know. Well, it's almost a, a, a Leninist idea of, like, revolution, where you're setting up um, an alternative shadow state to replace the official state. So as you were saying there about the Department of Agriculture, when the, the Dáil declares independence and the, the Sinn Féin elected, which we've discussed in a previous podcast about the 1918 election, when the majority of Irish MPs elected in 1918 for Sinn Féin set up their, their own parliament in Dublin, mm. uh, it's not just viewed as an empty act. They're going on to set up an alternative state with all the apparatus of a state. They really do it, yeah. This is And this is the amazing thing. And, and you know, it's also true in the, in the sphere of local government, which I just kind of alluded to. And, you know, it's the lesser known side. It's not the ambushes and the, and the raids and so forth, but it's possibly more important in a lot of ways. Mm. One, I mean, one difference, obviously, with the Leninist conception is that, you know, the dull courts in general are, are, are relatively conservative, you know. So the idea is, like, to calm land conflict, you know. And the land conflict is serious enough. I mean, there's shots fired and stuff over land disputes. And there's still quite a lot of, you know, the classic landlords, the Anglo-Irish kind of caste, are still around in, in quite a lot of places, contrary to what a lot of people think. But also, I mean, you know, there's a lot of cases of big farmers, so-called ranchers, you know, who, who are also probably nationalists of sorts and... You know, people are trying to take their land and divide it up among tenant farmers, and, and that, you know that's Sinn Fein 
judge that as something that's going to divide their support base. But I mean, they're trying to calm down conflict. There's there's episodes of strikes which are are kind of they they tend to be they tend to try to settle them with some sort of compromise. But there's certainly no kind of social revolutionary agenda. No, definitely not. Um, there's one case, for example, in Dublin, where which I came across, where Austin Stack intervened, where the Republican Court had uh, ruled that um, someone didn't have to pay back a moneylender who would charge like two hundred percent interest, you know. Mm. And Austin Stack intervened and said, "Well, this contravenes the the right to private property, so actually they do have to pay it back." So you know, it's there's there's no real social revolutionary agenda, but it is, but it is certainly nationalist revolutionary agenda in terms of replacing the British system. Yes, well, that's what we should say as well, that this must have been uh, subject to suppression by the British and holding courts in an area could be uh, could be liable, those involved, to arrest. Well, that's quite so, and that's an interesting point, because well, the British authorities, and especially the British military, interestingly, they were happy enough with the courts, and they were in the stage of being arbitration courts, because they said they were helping to keep order. Once the courts made a claim to, like, rival sovereignty, I suppose, rival authority, then they immediately urged them to be clamped down on, and they were. So in the summer of July, so about the, the summer of 1920, by July 1920, so around a month after Stack had set up the courts as as courts, mm. they start to be suppressed. So they're raided by the police, the RAC, and they're raided by the army, the British army, and um, their activists are arrested. For example, in Donegal, um, have a report of... Um, uh, um, uh, the clerk, I think, of the Dáil Court, who was arrested with 48 summons, summoning people to court, so claiming mm. the authority of the law, and then he's given hard labour, you know, sent off to Ballykendler. Mm. But the most high profile was uh, Dermot Crowley. As I mentioned, Dermot Crowley was a lawyer, Trinity educated. He had re- had been in the British Civil Service, but had resigned. And he was one of the circuit judges. Now, he was a man open to extravagant gestures, as we'll see, but he openly held a court in Ballina, in spite of the fact that there had been um, a decree forbidding the court to meet, but he openly held it in, not probably not in the courthouse, but in a public building in, in Ballina, County Mayo. And he was arrested and he was given two years hard labour. So, you know, that, that, it was serious penalties and by the autumn of, of 1920, the, the courts had been had been more or less driven underground. There was one or two operating, but basically they'd been suppressed by that point. Well, I think it's interesting looking back at newspapers from the late, late 19th, early 20th centuries, that Ireland comes across as a very litigious society, that the reports that come from, like, you know, the, the petty sessions and the quarterly assizes, report after report after report of neighbours uh, taking action against neighbours for various things to do with property, things involving fine, money, like, you know, owing money or anything like that. So if you had a situation in Ireland where, as a war of independence ramps up and courts cannot meet, there had to be something there to replace it. Well, it's a funny thing. I mean, you're quite right. And I mean, when you look at the local papers at the time, that's exactly what you see. And an incredible detail of coverage. And most of the cases that went before the dog courts were ordinary cases. You know, they were like that. There were disputes over things or they were for petty theft or, you know, the usual stuff. Mm. And and quite a, and, you know, they made an effort to try to get lawyers and so on to, to use them. Mm. But I mean, there's case. So, but to answer your question, um, there's cases like in the petty sessions, which was the previous system. The existing system, where judges say, I turned up to host the sessions, for example, in Kerry, the example I'm talking about, and there was uh, nobody turned up. So once the dull courts were suppressed, while the courts were operating in some places, they weren't properly operating. You know, they, they were being boycotted in a lot of cases. And the police, 
had become very militarised as well. They weren't really investigating crime. There was a lot of vigilante justice, and not just by the IRA, but also by like local vigilantes, because mm. law and order broke down really in a lot of Ireland. It didn't completely break down everywhere, but mm. for practical purposes, it kind of did. Now, when the truce came around, one of the things Aston Stack really tried to do was to get the Dáil Courts back up and running. As a historian of the Dáil Courts has, has, has written, that the courts took on a tremendous amount of new business during the truce period. So this is the period after July 1921 mm. until the signing of the treaty in December 1921. So there's no threat of suppression by the British state? Well, that's a good question. There was. That's the, the amazing yeah. thing. So there was two, this is the point when there's no the, the war is off, cancelled. There's two rival court systems operating, mm. right? And the RAC and the IRP are actually competing on the ground for who can suppress crime more, you know? Mm. And neither of them did a very good job by all accounts. But it, it's very interesting that the Dáil Courts were still being raided. And I mean, for example, in Donegal, because I happen to be looking at Donegal for, example, for an example, but in Donegal, they raided a Dáil Court in, um, in late 1921, just before the treaty was signed. The police did. And the argument of the Dáil Court was, well, this is just an arbitration court. But wouldn't that be viewed as quite provocative and maybe a threat to the truce? Yeah, well, the truce, the truce was a very rocky thing. I mean, it was, it was, it was almost observed more in the breach than the observance in a lot of cases. But this thing of the competition between who's going to impose the law, the law was was a real thing. I mean, I've come across cases in in Cavan um, Monaghan area where the IRA would arrest you know people for for crimes for for theft, usually stealing cattle and stuff, mm. and then the RAC would arrest the IRA um, men who arrested them. I'd let the thieves go and then you know some other ca- and then there's other cases where you know they, they both arrived at the same time to arrest the same people you know it was uh, uh, you know and they're both armed so yeah it was it was a very unstable situation and mm. what brought it to a head was of course the treaty and under the treaty the RAC was disbanded and there's well it, it wasn't that's not that's not actually a term of the treaty but that was agreed and um, while there was nothing explicitly in the court system about the treaty what you're left with is the British civil and military states being you know it's been evacuated out of Ireland and um, there's two, you still have two rival court systems. So in the first six months of 1922, you know, the nationalist movement, the Republican movement split over the treaty, over the terms, obviously. This ends, ends up being civil war between pro and anti-treaty elements. But another aspect of it, is, well, and just a, yet a little digression, another, another aspect of it is there's te- technically two rival assemblies. So under the treaty, there's the Parliament of Southern Ireland. But the Parliament that... Republicans think they're attending is the Dáil, the second yeah. Dáil. So, I mean, there's this, this, there's this very confused idea of what the power is and what the legitimate power is in this period. Almost the period of dual power, to use a Leninist phrase. But there's also two rival court systems. So the government declares its preference in early 1922 to get the previous system, the petty sessions and the circuit, the circuit courts and so on, back up and running. And they convene a constitutional committee chaired by Lord Navy, who had been a prominent unionist, but, you know, he was supportive of the treaty to set up a, a new high court, right? But at the same time, the dull courts are doing most of the business, actually, in many areas. So that well, was this an issue that had been taught about or covered at all in the treaty or during the treaty negotiations? Not to my knowledge. I mean, they, you know, when you look at the treaty, the actual terms of the treaty, I mean, there's actually very little in it about mm. the nitty-gritty of Irish life or Irish um, legal or political systems. I mean, this must have been agreed separately in, in the actual terms of the treaty. You know, there was there was long negotiations about the constitution and what that would involve mm. uh, in early twenty two, and I assume that was that was covered there. You know, but even things like, for example, release of prisoners isn't determined the treaty at all. When we talk about the, the treaty negotiations, there's probably more than one thing going on, and and to talk about them just as the treaty negotiations is probably too limited. Well, I wonder for people who are involved, 
pro-treatyites within Sinn Féin that, uh, and maybe outside Sinn Féin as well, when they're looking at the, the Dáil courts, perhaps they, they imagine that under the new free state that the new legal system would adopt some of the more egalitarian aspects of the Dáil courts. I was like, you're dealing with a situation uh, previous to that in Ireland under the UK where barristers wore robes and uh, wigs uh, judges were still in all their gowns and regalia. Yeah. And under the Dáil courts, there's none of this. Yeah, as you mentioned there earlier, women are acting as judges. So what happens there? Judges are elected, actually. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And I mean, it, it, there may have been a debate about this, but really, what brought it to my head and what finished it was the civil war. You know, because they 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 allowed the situation to drift, like a lot of things were allowed to drift in early 1922, but it drifted until uh, July 1922, when. The Civil War broke out in June 28th, 1922, when the pro-treaty army, the National Army, attacked the four courts and the anti-treaty IRA there. The fighting broke out around the country, but lots of people were taken prisoner in the fighting in Dublin. Um, I think about 700, if I recall. And one of them, George Plunkett, appealed to Dermot Crowley, who, as I've mentioned, was uh, one of the senior judges of the Dáil Courts, and he had been released under the, after the treaty. You know, he was imprisoned for participation in the Dáil Courts. Interesting, just a quick aside, I mean, one of the ministers of the Free State, Patrick Hogan, was also imprisoned for his role in the Dull Courts. But anyway, George Plunkett appealed to the Dull Courts under a writ of habeas corpus. Habeas corpus is the right not to be imprisoned without trial, right, for the release of his son, uh, who had been captured in the Four Courts. And Dermot Crowley issued a decree in his capacity as a, as a, a, a Supreme Justice of the Dull Courts that he must be released because he hadn't been charged with anything and there was no, no legislation authorising it. And that is quite correct, because there was no legislation until September, or, yeah, well, it was drafted in September, and passed in November 1922. So the people were illegally held. He issued a writ to the Minister for Defence, Richard Mulcahy, uh, saying that the prisoners, that they had to show cause of arrest, or release the prisoners by the 26th of July. He issued a writ to Richard Mulcahy, and also to the Governor of Mountjoy Prison. And in response to this, on July 25th, which was the day before Crowley's deadline, the provisional government abolished the Dáil Courts by decree. So they rescinded the the law passed in June 1920 by the first Dáil, but they just abolished the Dáil Court system, you know, overnight. And interestingly, George Gavin Duffy resi- resigned in, in protest from the provisional government in, in, at the abolition of the Dáil Courts. Mm. But for Dermot Crowley, um, on the July 26th, when his deadline was up, and when the Dáil Courts had just been abolished, he issued another decree calling the dissolution illegal and ordering the arrest of uh, Richard Mulcahy and Colin O'Murrah, who was the governor of Mountain Prison. Like I, I told you, Crowley was, he was prone to grand gestures. Yes. So, you Seems know, like an unwise grand gesture. It was an extremely unwise thing, right? So this is, uh, he also, and, and incidentally, he also, uh, he also issued a decree uh, to Owen McNeil, what's the word, you know, uh, ordering him to uh, convene the Dáil, because mm. of course the Dáil wasn't convened. Mm. The Dáil elected in June 22, wasn't convened until well into the Civil War until after Michael Cullen's death. In mm. fact, that's another story. But anyway, Dermot Crowley, he didn't get away with this grand gesture, of course, because he was picked up on the street by members of the CID, which was, you know, the, what would we say, the strong arm of the free state, mm. as he was walking down the street and he was stuck into Wellington Barracks, which was at the time in a notorious holding centre for, for prisoners. Mm. And there's a long correspondence with the, between him and Cahir David. Now, Cahir David was, um, he went on to be Chief Justice of the Free State at the time. He was... Um, if I recall correctly, his exact position is legal advisor to the army at this particular time, but he's pro-treaty, I just want to 
my point. But Cahard Avid had helped Dermot Crowley set up the dog court system in the first place. Now, there's a long correspondence between Cahard Avid and Dermot Crowley when he's in prison, or when he's in the barracks. He's he held prisoner anyway. Um, and it's published in, um, Tabot published it in his Bureau of Military History Statement. Mm. And, the, and, you know, the conditions were very bad, and he was in a cell with three or four prisoners. But because he was a special case, he was not beat. So the other prisoners would be taken out at night and, and beaten up. And Dermot managed to avoid that. You know, so he, but just out of interest, do you know if Crowley had expressed an opinion pro or anti the treaty? I'm not sure about that because uh, you know he, he certainly he was very anti treaty afterwards. But uh, I mean, you know, he was acting in his position. He his position was that he was acting in his position as supreme justice of the dog courts, and what the government was doing was illegal. Mm-hmm. He wanted them to follow the law, as he understood it. Mm-hmm. So, it, I, I'm not sure about that. If he expressed a public position about the treaty. I mean, certainly afterwards he was very hardcore anti-treaty, but that's perhaps to be expected. Yes. But he was held in he was held in um, in Wellington Barracks until I think either he was arrested in in uh, late July or early August, and he was held probably for about a month or two. I mean, there's one account that he was arrested, he was held there for a few weeks, but I think he was there's other accounts that he was held there till October twenty two, and Cahard Abbott basically managed to get him out, mm. and at least he wasn't beaten up like the other prisoners who were there. But it's you know it, it does it, it does raise a very interesting question about you know the, the legality of everything that was going on at the time. But then in the, the wider question of the dog courts is, um, you know, I mean, like a, like a lot of things, I mean, you know, the provisional government, you know, they took a very kind of moralistic line, you know, and so Kevin O'Higgins would get up in the dog and, and, and there was a dog courts winding up bill. And he said all the dog courts were corrupt and nobody was getting good justice from them and so on and so on, you know, and they were, you know, cover for land grabbers and, and so on. Now, which none of which was true, I mean, because they were actually quite conservative in their rulings, you know, and they did have, you know, because of Crowley and Davitt and, and also James Creed Meredith, who I'll speak a bit about in a second, they did have a written code of conduct. But anyway, it's, you know, the, the, the government's version was that they were corrupt and stuff like that. And that's well, what they were of, uh, led to enormous resentment from people who put a lot of effort into Dalvort. Well, indeed. And not only that, but I mean, can you imagine all the... You mentioned that it's a very litigious society, right? There's 5,000 cases backed up in the Dal courts because mostly outside of Dublin uh, and maybe the cities, People have been using the dog courts rather than the the other courts, the, let's say the British courts, mm. but you know the existing courts. Um, so what they found, what they found was when they investigated us, there was five thousand cases, including appeals, that were backed up. So at the end of the civil war, they had to set up a new body, which they called the Dog Courts Winding Up Commission, it was based in Dublin Castle. And interestingly, Crowley was forgiven his misdemeanors because he was offered a position in it, but he turned him down. Now, one possible reason is he turned him down is because he didn't get the chief position. But another reason is because he's, you know, he's, he declared himself a staunch anti-treaty by this point. The, the main legal uh, player here is uh, James Creed Meredith, who uh, was another one of these lawyers who would help to set up the dull courts in the first place. Uh, him and, and several others had to, um, they had to travel the country and they had to sort out these 5,000 cases. And their work went on until, until uh, 1924. It's a very interesting story, actually. You know, you could probably you could almost write a book about just the just the Dole Courts winding up commission. And apparently, I haven't read their records, but their records are held in the uh, National Archives of Ireland. And and of course, the Free State went on to, um, you know, it, it went on to set up its 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 system of justice, its high courts, and so on, and but, uh, under its new constitution. Yeah. But very much replicating the old system rather than even just in appearance and style, the Dáil Courts. 100%, yeah. There's nothing much Republican about their imagery or anything yeah. like that, yeah. So as he discussed there with Crowley, yeah. obviously this makes him persona non grata when coming to nail her in government. So what happens when Fianna Fáil... Well, you, you know, you, you th- you'd think that, wouldn't you? But, I mean, actually, they seem to have forgiven Crowley for whatever reason, possibly because he had a lot of influential friends like Cahir David, who went on to be the Attorney General. 
So he doesn't get the top job in the Dal Courts Winding of Commission, which he's upset about. But he, he was offered a job, which he didn't take. But he demanded payment for life as a judge of the Dal, as a Supreme Justice of the Dal. And he kept up the petition until 1934 to be paid his salary for life as Supreme Justice of the Dal Courts. Now, they didn't give him that, but they did give him a pension in 1925 of £500 pounds a year, which is a very substantial amount at the time, right? Yeah. It doesn't sound like much today, but it's a lot. It's a lot at the time. Like, my grandparents in and around that time, I believe, bought their house in Clarecastle County Clare for €400. Euro. So he's getting €500. Euro. Yeah. Uh, sorry, pounds. Yeah. I said euro. Like, £500 a, a year. It's, it's, it's quite a lot. So he's doing fine, and he has a big house in the North Circular Road. He, he kept demanding his, his full salary as Supreme Court Supreme Justice of the uh, Dull Courts until 1934, when the High Court ruled against him on the grounds that he had taken the pension. So that invalidated the other claim. But he became a staunch supporter of Sinn Féin, even post the split between Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil. He criticised de Valera for taking the oath and entering the Dull. Uh, he said it went back into the empire. He was single his whole life and lived in a big house on the North Circular Road, but died in 1947, leaving an estate of £7,928. So, you know, it, it, it's hard to see him as a victim of the Civil War, you know, at the same time. Well, do you know, did he did he practice as a solicitor or barrister in the state afterwards? No, he left off his pension, I believe. Oh, right, okay. But, you know, that's, he would have been comfortably off. Well, yeah, and I suppose that would have opened him up to accusations of hypocrisy if he was willing to work within the the new state's legal system. Well, exactly, yeah. So it is an interesting thing to, to talk about that you encourage people as part of this revolutionary movement to turn their backs on the legal system, the civil service, the government departments. And then at what point, which seems to be like the story of the civil war and the treaty, at what point do you say the revolution has gone far enough? We will revert, revert to, to the past. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, and this is... I, I, one of like one of the things you can take from the story of the Dal Courts is you know this terrible disillusion of the Civil War you know and this backtracking and and in the case of people like Wiggins and Patrick Hogan for example close ally of Kevin Wiggins but also a man who had served as a judge of the Dal Courts and who had been imprisoned as a result um you know this kind of uh, slandering almost of the achievements you know of the Nationalist Revolution you know saying that it was all corrupt and incompetent and stuff and you had to go back to the good old fashioned system that's part of the story as well and it's you know beyond the the terrible violence and stuff that, and the bitterness that, that caused i mean there's there's also there is also a wider canvas you know where you know the civil war period is about backtracking and what you had done and, and almost saying it was wrong and you were stupid and should never have done it so then that that leads to some of these really bitter kind of divisions i think that we see that we see in in, in independent ireland as well it is curious isn't it it's almost like uh, invalidating the previous struggle yeah yeah now, start. you talked about the fact that this was a very conservative body, the Dáil Courts. Oh, fairly conservative, yeah. Fairly conservative. In terms of the social movements that were happening at the time, the land and labour pressures coming from below. But did you find that there were many ordinary people who found that the, the system of justice in the Dáil Courts was better or more egalitarian than the British system at play at at that time in Ireland, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, the thing is, the Dáil Courts were were very much improvised. You know, they started off as, as things to, to kind of settle land disputes, and they became arbitration courts, and then they became you know the Dáil Courts. So it, it's not quite true that people were making them up as they went along, but they kind of were. You know, so I mean, they, they um, they they probably varied a lot in in their judgments. There is certainly a lot of 
there does seem to be a lot of kind of cases where the judges try to be more egalitarian. Like I talked about this this example from Dublin where they tried to forgive someone's debt to a, a money lender and so on. I think that yes, there's an element of that, but I also think that you know they were quite well appointed, right? The fact that most that there was five thousand backed up cases that loads of people who had no dog in the fight over the treaty, who weren't interested in that aspect of it, you know, appealed that their cases be heard, you know, that they had lodged cases and they wanted them heard, shows that the dog courts were working, you know, quite well in 1922. Or people people seem to have had quite a lot of confidence in them. Well, one thing we should mention as well is that probably a lot of people would be aware of the dog courts through the, the movie The Wind That Shakes the Barley yeah. and uh, Ken Loach's film yeah. from a couple of years ago. That they have quite an extended scene. That's right. In the Dal Courts, uh, and perhaps shown some of the hypocrisy regarding justice in some of the Dal Dal Courts. Yeah, and I mean it's a good like a lot of things in that movie. I mean it's a good scene. It's a good introduction for people, and it tells them that you know the events of that time weren't just about ambushes and shooting and killing and so on. Mm-hmm. I mean that there was a civil side to it, and there was a constructive side to it. One thing I will say though is that like you know in. In that in that scene in, in that movie, you know, the, it's like there. I think there there's um. It's a debt. It's a case of debt. I think in the in the scene, and one person wants to wants to forgive the debt, and the other one, you know, doesn't want to because the person you know they owe money to is influential and stuff like that. I don't think it was as informal as that actually, because they they did have you know once they were set up, especially after the truce, you know, they did have um, written procedure and they did have circuit judges who were supervising them, so. I mean, for, well, first of all, I mean, in in the when the chase the barley, if I'm not mistaken, I mean that happens at the height of the time war, which wasn't possible. Mm. I mean, but during the truce, they were fairly regularly run, and they did have written codes of conduct and so on, and they did have supervision. So it wasn't. I don't think it was as informal as that. I think the people did, did expect some sort of a, a rule based or law based judgment from mm. it. So just maybe to finish up, though, I mean, I think this is kind of under understudied uh, aspect of the Irish Revolution, especially the dissolution of the Dull Courts, which I think is a fascinating story. Just a quick thing about people who've done work on it. So Mary Katsunas, who was herself a, a judge, uh, has written a, a book on this in the in the early 90s. Um, John Borgonovo uh, more recently wrote an article in a book called um, Justice, I think, in, in Conflict Societies. I think there's a lot more work to be done. And as I said, the records of the Dull Courts Final Commission, which have a lot of the records of the Dull Courts, are held in the National Archives. So I think that's that's... That's potential for a, further work for a people. Potential for, for an enterprising PhD student could find some good stuff there. One of the things that you mentioned earlier, John, was about um, the IRA acting outside of the Dáil Courts when somebody was accused of being an informer. Yeah. That this accusation wasn't something that they could be tried amongst uh, before a body of judges That's in the locality. But Given such a, given that such a serious accusation, yeah, and that as we've seen, people are wrongly shot or wrongly accused of being informers. Yeah, it does call into question the whole the whole legal ideas of the revolution. Yeah, I mean, there there were people with a very strong sense of, of legality. I mean, they really they really liked this idea of, of the law and stuff. And you know, like when it comes down to the arguments about the treaty, a lot of them get very bogged down in these technical details about which is legal and which isn't. Um, in ter- so in terms of informers, you know, in theory, what happens was that you know there were military court martials. So again, it's mimicking the British system in a lot of ways, right? That they were being charged by the, tried by the military, which was the IRA, with crimes against the army, which was at war, the army of the republic. And that's the legal theory. Now, 
sometimes that does happen. Sometimes there is a court martial body, which is, you know, a local IRA officers, and they do write to GHQ when they present evidence, and GHQ mm-hmm. gives them permission. But a lot of the time, especially in County Cork, that did not happen. You know, the intelligence uh, arm of the IRA figured that people were guilty of informing or other crimes. And, you know, they they were they might have been taken in and questioned, but then they would have been shot without further ado. And I mean, there's complaints from GHQ, from Collins and Mulcahy, particularly Mulcahy, about how many people they're shooting in Cork. That isn't the same in every area, but yeah, certain, yeah I mean, it is, you know, it's it's a little bit like the collision between the theory and the reality, though. So in theory, they have this, this parallel legal system and that includes this military dimension, the court-martial system. Reality is not like that, really. You know, especially in places like Cork, where there's a lot of people shot as informers. And um, there's places where, you know, this isn't uniform. I mean, so there's, I think there's 60-odd people shot as informers in County Cork out of about 200 nationwide, you know. So, you know, some places shoot a lot. Some places hardly shoot any. You know, like County Clare shoots about three, I think. But yeah, I mean, I think the legality of the shooting informers is a bit of a, a bit of a fiction. Well, thank you very much for that, John. Uh, you're probably going to, I think, write up this for the Irish Story website. Um, so people can find that on theirstory.com. Thank you very much. Uh, that was John Dorney. My name is Cahill Brennan. If you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes of the show, please go to irishhistoryshow.ie. You can also check us out on Twitter at Irish History Pod or Facebook, our Facebook page. So until next time, thank you very much.